0: With you, please open them up with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 19, Revelation, chapter 19. We'll be looking at verses 11 through the end of the chapter tonight. The title of this evening's message is simply the return of Jesus Christ, the return of Jesus Christ. We are going to see all of the book of Revelation has been kind of leading up to this climactic event of Christ's return. And John has been revealing to us the things that we believe will happen right, at the, uh, right before Christ's return, something known as the time of tribulation. We've been reading through and studying those judgments that the Lord will be pouring out and then the culmination of things at Christ's return. And tonight we'll look at the passage that, passages that actually describe his return. But as you're holding your place there in Revelation 19... I want you to turn back to Revelation chapter 1. So we'll be looking at chapter 19, but I want to introduce tonight with just a refresher of Revelation chapter 1, the first few verses. I want to remind you why this book is titled The Revelation. Revelation means obviously something is being revealed, something that was not yet known, something that was not yet completely understood has been revealed. And we see that right here in the first three verses of Revelation 1. The Apostle John gives us the introduction to the book. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Back now to Revelation 19. The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember the Apostle John, of course, he knew Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. He walked with Christ. He fellowshiped with him for Several years, he watched him perform miracles. He heard his teachings. He sat under his discipleship, even saw him crucified, saw him also resurrected. There was no doubt in John's mind who this Jesus was. He was the son of God. But what John sees and what John will explain to us even tonight in this chapter is a very different look at Jesus than the one he has known. And that's why it's something of a revelation. You might ask, well, why would John need a revelation of Jesus Christ? John already knew Jesus. I mean, if anybody knew Jesus, it were the disciples that walked and lived with him and saw the miracles firsthand. But what we saw at Christ's first appearing was the the Savior come to redeem the world. He came in humility. He came to serve. He came to die on a cross and offer his life as a ransom for mankind. What we will see at the second coming of Christ is a very different looking Jesus. Of course, it is the same Jesus. He is ever the same. He never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But we are going to see a different manifestation or a different ex- different expression of Christ than we saw during his first revelation. And so John is disclosing that, and that's why it really is a kind of a new revelation. Jesus is coming, and you'll see tonight as we look at these passages, whoa, this is not the humble servant riding into Jerusalem on the donkey. This is a, this is a whole different expression of Jesus Christ. This is him not coming to, to offer his life, but this is him coming actually to set up his kingdom He's coming now to rule and reign. He's coming to judge the earth. He came first to save. Now he comes to judge and bring to completion these things that we've been studying. We'll look at it in two sections tonight. We'll be looking at verses 11 through the end of the chapter. In verses 11 through 16, we will consider his coming. And in verses 17 through 21, we will consider his conquest. Let's begin together in a verse 11 and let's take a look at his coming. And I have three points under his coming, his appearance, his armies and his attitude. First of all, let's consider his appearance Verses 11 through 13. Now I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is a warrior coming now. This is a different Jesus than what we're accustomed to. Verse 12, his eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. So as we look at his coming, the first thing we notice is this whole new appearance to Jesus. He's not coming as a child in a manger, but rather he's coming riding a white horse. And this would be symbolic, of course, of, of what John would understand even in his time. The, the, you know, the Roman generals that would come in victorious. They would ride in on a white horse, a triumphal procession. And this is certainly the imagery that Jesus is, is revealing to John, that he's coming on a white horse. This is the victor coming in to claim his kingdom. A lot different than where Jesus is today. Today, the Bible tells us that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, ever making intercession for us. So Jesus, after he was raised from the grave and appeared to his disciples, he ascended to heaven and he has taken his seat at the right hand of God. And he waits there until the father makes his enemies his footstool. So he is there and in that process he acts as intercessor, he acts as high priest, And, of course, the invitation goes out. Come, come to salvation. Come to the Savior. Come to faith in Jesus. He is ever there to make intercession for us. But He's no longer seated at the right hand, is He? Now He's seated on a horse. The heavens are opened and He is now on the move. Jesus is currently seated at the right hand in heaven, but there is coming a moment in time when the Father will send Him to redeem the earth, and He will come no longer seated, but now on the move, coming to earth. Notice the various names that John reveals to us. Some we've heard before. Faithful and true. This, of course, just speaks of His character, concerning His promises. He is faithful and He is true. He will come again. Jesus promised His disciples that He would come. He said, if I go, I go to prepare a place for you but I will come and bring you where I am so that where I am you may be also. Remember that, that interchange with, with Jesus and His disciples? I'm coming back. And sometimes after you know, promises, when they go unfulfilled for long seasons of time, we, we begin to wonder, you know, well, I know He said He was coming back, but I'm just wondering when or maybe if. And so remember, He is faithful and he is true. He will return. He will keep his word. And when he comes, he will come to judge and make war. Wow, this is different than his first time out, isn't it? He's, he said I, the, son of, the first time he said the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. But when he returns, he's coming to judge and make war. This is a, a warrior coming to the earth. It also says that he had a name that no one knew except himself. Well, since we don't know the name, we can't comment much on it. We don't really know what it is. But, you know, it does speak to my heart in this way, that there's still things about Jesus Christ that are yet to be revealed. There's still a mystery about the Lord, you know, His ways and, and the depth of His nature. So even in this passage, He lets us know there's, there's, some, there's more concerning Jesus Christ that is yet to be revealed. And, and we will, of course, begin to see that. As, as he reveals more and more of himself. I don't think we're ever going to like get bored with the Lord. Oh yeah, I know him. I've seen him. We've, we've talked. I, we've said everything there is to say. I think that the Lord is going to continue to surprise us. The Lord is going to continue to kind of blow our minds with who he is and what he has planned for us. And I think that this just gives a hint to that, that there's a name of Jesus that, that no one but himself even knows yet. Also, a name that is referenced here, he's called the Word of God. Well, that's what John called him in the Gospel of John, isn't it? And the Word was made flesh, Jesus Christ, the Word of God. You know, we use words to express and to reveal our uh, truth. Jesus Christ is the revelation and expression of God. Hebrews 1, chapter 3 says this concerning Jesus, that he is... Uh, the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Jesus is that word of God. If God wanted to declare himself to you with the word, it would be Jesus Christ. That is the living word. If Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. He is the exact image of his person. So those are his names. He also has eyes of fire. And when I think of eyes of fire, I think that it it kind of symbolizes that Jesus sees and knows all things. Nothing is hidden from his sight. Sometimes we imagine, I think, that God doesn't really know the secrets of our heart or that somehow God, you know, isn't noticing. Others don't seem to. We seem to be able to kind of deceive people, sometimes even ourselves. But understand this, that the Lord sees and the Lord knows. He knows our hearts. He knows our very, very intimate thoughts within our hearts. And Jesus has eyes. And when he comes back, he comes with eyes, flame of fire. He sees, he knows. There'll be no kind of making excuse. There'll be no... uh, Oh, but 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 you don't understand no he does understand and he does see and he knows these things and it just kind of represents the the all-knowing aspect of the Lord. nothing is hidden from his sight many many crowns he is sovereign he rules over all things you know I think of of generals in our in our our military and you know there's different star generals, right a one star, a two star, a three star and then the five star general and that You know, that with with each star comes a certain rank and a certain authority. Jesus doesn't just come with one crown. He comes with many crowns. He is the supreme ruler of all. There will be none equal to him. There will be no kings of the earth that are not subservient to him. He will have conquered all and he himself will rule. And his robe is dipped in blood. Now, this is not his blood. He's already shed His blood once and for all at Calvary. This image of Him coming with a robe that is dipped in blood is an image of the blood of His enemies that He has come to vanquish. This is not going to be uh, a soft landing. This is going to be Jesus come to judge the earth. And it's, as you'll see, it's going to be a, uh, quite a, a gruesome event. Those that have resisted him, those that have rebelled against him, those that have refused him, those that have turned their back on the gospel, shaken their fists at him and said he will not rule over us. Oh, yes, he will. And he will come and he will establish his rule. The second thing here concerning his appearance, his coming is not only his appearance, but let's consider his armies. Verse 14. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses so he's coming, he's not coming alone, is he? Now you will notice that no one is armed. He, hel- he alone will be doing the fighting. They're not coming to help him win the battle. They're simply coming to the victory with their conquering general. But the question arises, well, who are they? Who are these armies? Who will be coming with the Lord? Does the word of God give us any idea as to who is coming with Jesus? Well, in fact, it does. We know one of the... Uh, some of who will be coming are the angels. Let me give you a couple references. Matthew 25, 31. Jesus speaking, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. So we know that He's coming with His holy angels. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7. You who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. So we know part of the army of God that returns with Christ is the angels. But also there will be saints. There will be believers. 1 Thessalonians 3.13 Speaking to the Thessalonians, Paul said, praying for them, that Jesus would establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. Now, saints is typically a reference to Believers, those that have been set apart in God, those that have come to salvation. Jude, verse 14 says, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. We believe that this reference, if you'll notice there, it says they're clothed in fine linen. You see that in verse 14? Clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Well, doesn't that remind you of a verse just prior in this chapter? Look up there at verse 8. Talking about the bride of Jesus, which we know to represent the church. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And now he's coming with his armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. So clearly there, is, there will be angels, but there will also be saints. And looks to me like a very direct reference to the bride of Christ or the church. The church of Jesus Christ will be coming with him from heaven. Now this brings up a question, and it's something I, I want to mention a little bit tonight because it's so often a debated question. And we won't probably solve it to anybody's full satisfaction tonight, but I think I, want, I can give you a few things to think on. Where, where will the church be during this time of tribulation? Where will the bride of Christ be? Apparently, the bride comes with Christ at his return, and they come from heaven to the earth. So the issue is, well, how did the church get there? Will all the church be there or will some of the church still be here? And then the the question that typically comes up is the rapture. What is is the rapture and when does it happen? And I'm going to be honest with you. uh, This is something that I I wrestled with for years, this whole kind of end time scenario, trying trying to figure out which model made sense. And there's a lot of different views. Some of you probably heard a lot of the different views. There's different views about the millennium and what that means, what that thousand year period is. Is it literal? Is it future? Is it now? We'll we'll cover some of that in chapter 20. That's where it's specifically mentioned. But you have to kind of figure out where you stand on the millennium. That is the, the, the reign of Christ. Will it be on the earth or is it symbolic being fulfilled today in the church? A lot of questions. And then... Well, okay, then this tribulation period, well, we see pretty clearly in Revelation that there is going to be this time. Jesus said that there'll come a time that none like it on the earth, nor ever will there be. We know from Daniel chapter nine, there seems to be a seven year period of Israel history yet to be fulfilled. And we think that represents the seven year tribulation. I don't want to confuse you with all this. We've covered a lot of this. I'm just trying to Zero in now on this idea of the rapture. Now hold your place there, but turn with me to First Thessalonians, chapter four. Now there's, as I mentioned, there's a lot of, a lot of places to get uh, hung up on this end time stuff, and you can look at it and. Your head can spin, and I did that, and, and to be honest, there are times my head still kind of spins. But I want to give you at least the view that I've come to. It's it's the view that uh, typically Calvary chapels hold to, and it took me a while to get there, just to be honest. First Thessalonians chapter 4. First of all, let's look at the event that we reference as the rapture, and then we'll talk about its timing. 1 Thessalonians 4, look at verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Talking about those that have passed away. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another, with these words. So there's no debate that this event is going to take place at somewhere surrounding the Lord's return. The question is, is this is Paul describing the event that will take place at the very end of the tribulation, meaning that the church and Christians, the believer, the believing church will indeed go through this time of tribulation only to be raptured at the last when he returns? The question would arise, well, why would we need to meet him in the air if he's just coming to the earth? It's kind of an up and down, kind of a real quick thing. But there are some who believe, yeah, no, the rapture is, is the, it's, it's at the end of the tribulation and the church is going to go through the tribulation. And then there are others who believe that the rapture actually occurs before the tribulation. That Jesus is going to come and catch up his church. We're going to be translated In in a moment, it says in Corinthians, in the twinkle of an eye, we are going to be changed and caught up with the Lord in the air, and we will ever be with the Lord. And those that believe that the rapture comes prior to the tribulation believe that he then takes the church to heaven with him and awaits the tribulation to play out and then comes with his church, with his angels to the earth in final victory. And I'll tell you, I, I had so much trouble kind of wrestling, trying to figure that out. And, you know, no one can be 100 percent sure. But let me give you a couple of thoughts that that helped me kind of come to this conclusion that, you know, it looks to me that the rapture comes before the tribulation. And I'll tell you why I wrestled with that, because in my mind that I couldn't I couldn't make sense of that how's that going to happen? I mean, we're going to be on the freeway and I'm going to be driving the car and I'm going to be raptured out and cars are just going to... It just seems so crazy to me that... Now, of course, God can do anything, but it just seemed like such a strange way for the Lord to do something. So I kind of stumbled over that and I thought, that's just... You know, Lord, is that the way you're going to do it? Well, I don't know how he's going to do it. But there are some biblical things that led me to believe that the church is not going to be here during the time of tribulation. I'll give you just a couple of thoughts, and and then we'll we'll keep going through our study here of Christ's return. You'll notice, and we can go back now to Revelation 19. You'll notice that as we go through this passage together, there is nothing mentioned of this kind of translating all that are in all believers and all the dead in Christ rising and meeting the Lord in the air. It simply says that the heavens are opened and he comes from heaven with his armies. You would think an event as significant as raising all the dead and translating all that are alive in Christ in in a moment, catching up with him in the air to descend in his victory. You would think that if that such a significant event would be discussed here in chapter 19, if in fact that took place. But there, it's silent on that. There's no mention of that. It simply says he comes from heaven and everybody's already with him. So it seems to, to lead to believe that the event that Paul's talking in in Thessalonians doesn't happen here, which means it must have already happened at the time of the beginning of the tribulation. So that's one thought for you. There's nothing in Revelation 19 that would tie into a to a to a rapture at the end of the tribulation it's just not mentioned or covered there also and you don't need to turn to this but in revelation chapter 4 when John after he finishes his letter to the churches and the beginning of this revelation that he's going to see of the tribulation the angel there he sees a door open in heaven and the angel says come up here So John has been writing letters to the churches. He's been seeing his vision on the earth. And then now that he's going to see future events, specifically the tribulation, the angel says, no, now you need to come up from heaven. i come up to heaven because you need to see the perspective from here. And when he gets there, what does he find? He finds the 24 elders, which we believe symbolically represent the church. He finds them already there worshiping the Lord. Worthy is the Lamb. Who will open the seal? You know, that, those passages. So the first thing he arrives in is kind of this worship scene in heaven. And it seems that the angels and the church are already there enjoying the worship of the Lord. So that would give us an idea that from John's vision that coming up to heaven would, would kind of support the idea that the church will be raptured before these times of tribulation get poured out on the earth. Probably the most, for me, the most convincing the thing that kind of put me over the, the edge was this idea of the wrath of God. There is no question, and if you've been with us on Wednesday nights working your way through these passages, there, is no, there shouldn't be any question in anybody's mind that the time of tribulation is all about God pouring out His wrath upon the earth. It is not a good time to be here. It is God pouring out judgment upon judgment upon judgment. The seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven bowls, and it just it's, it's going to be not a good time. As Jesus said, it, it's, it's a, nothing like it on the earth, ever or ever again. So it is clearly the wrath of God being poured out on rebellious men who live upon the earth. But the Bible has some promises for Christians and for His Church. Let me quote a couple of them to you. First Thessalonians five, verse nine says this for God did not appoint us to wrath, speaking to the to the church, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians chapter one, verse ten, he says he encourages them, he says, wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So there seems to be almost an impossibility if revelation and the tribulation is all about wrath, but the church has not been destined for wrath, then how can the church be on the earth when it's all about wrath? So it it seems that the Lord must catch away the church prior to, to the pouring out of wrath. Now, there are other support texts. There are other more intricate um, ideas of why this is supported. Um, but I'm just telling you kind of the, the quick overview. I'm trying to answer who is this army that's coming with Jesus Christ when he returns. But I wanted to give you a little of this because I, I think it's, it's something that we often, I know I did, I wrestled with it and there's all kinds of views and you hear all kinds of viewpoints and some of them make pretty good sense. And that's why there are different views because it's it's not so crystal clear. I'm giving you some of what I think lends support to the idea that God will be rapturing or catching his church up into the air with him. We will ever be with the Lord. Jesus said, I will go to prepare a place for you. I will come and bring you to where I am that you may be with me. I believe that the church will be in heaven with the Lord, enjoying that wonderful worship service and then waiting for Him to come back to the earth. Okay, back to Revelation 19. That's His army. I believe it's the the raptured church. I believe it's the, the Old Testament saints that have gone to be with Him. I believe that it is His holy angels. Let's look... At the last part that I have here under his coming, and that is we've looked at his appearance, his army. Let's look at his attitude. (laughs) He comes with an attitude. Verses 15 and 16. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Again, incredible imagery. This is a very different looking Jesus that John is seeing. It is, of course, the same Jesus, but now revealed in his full power and glory, not humbled and limited in his human form, but now in his true deity. Out of His mouth goes a sharp sword. It was God's Word that created the heavens and the earth, you remember, in Genesis. And the Lord said, let there be, and there was. There's power in the Word of God. God speaks, things happen. And so it will be when Jesus returns. Out of His mouth will come a sharp sword. And His Word will judge and destroy His enemies. He's going to come and establish his kingdom and he's going to rule with a rod of iron. This means very simply that he will, be, he will have complete supremacy. There will be no rivals. This will, he will not be later voted out. There will be no elections. Jesus will come to rule. And he will rule with a rod of iron. There will be a complete submission to his authority He will come to establish His kingdom and fulfill all the prophecies concerning Him. Remember, the government shall be upon His shoulders, that prophecy out of Isaiah. And and indeed it will. And this was what the disciples, you may remember in the book of Acts, Jesus' disciples, they had this future kingdom in mind. And they had thought that His first visit to the earth, He was going to establish that kingdom. That's why they were a little confused when he started talking about dying on a cross. They were like, you know, that, that doesn't fit our, our theology. You're here as the Messiah. You're going to establish the, uh, the kingdom on the earth. And they would ask him questions. And you remember, even after his resurrection, when he said, go to Jerusalem and wait there because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. You're going to be filled with power. Remember that passage? And they said, is that when you're going to set up the kingdom? Right away they're thinking, oh, we'll wait in Jerusalem for, for a little while and, and, and that's when you're going to do all these things that we, we've heard and you're going to, the government's going to be on your shoulders, you're going to reestablish Israel as a nation, you're going to reign in Jerusalem and you're going to establish your kingdom. They thought it would happen right then. They just, they didn't, they, no, no one understood that there would be this 2,000 plus year gap between his first coming and his establishing of his kingdom. And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times and seasons. In other words, I'm not disclosing that to you now. You just go to Jerusalem and wait for the power that I have for you in the person of the Holy Spirit. But now, here in Revelation 19, this is what the disciples were asking about way back in the book of Acts. This is Him coming to rule in His kingdom. This is Him coming to establish His rule. He will also tread out the winepress with the fierceness and wrath Hebrews 10:31 says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. The wine press—that's the image of, of gathering the grapes and pressing them until all of the juice is removed—and that's that's what He's going to come. He's going to come, and He's going to be pressing through the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. He comes with great power, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You know, today, people don't respect Jesus. Many don't respect Him as King of kings and Lord of lords, do they? We as Christians, we, we know that He is indeed the King of kings and Lord of lords. But be honest, in the earth, in most, most places in the world, Jesus Christ is, is not King of kings and Lord of lords. In fact, often His name is taken in vain. He's not really respected for what the Bible seems to declare that he is. There's a disconnect, isn't there? I mean, king of kings and lord of lords, huh? Well, where is he? What are you talking about? He's not, he's not the king of kings and lord of lords. You know, I do what I want. I, mean, I say what I want. I, he's, he, and, and, and the world seems to be going on without any real deference to Christ. No real need to honor him that way. But the book of Philippians speaks about him. Philippians 2.9 Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is not yet here, but it is already established for those that have come to faith in Christ. We have already embraced this truth about him, that he is king of kings and Lord of lords. And when he returns and he will return, he will come and there will be no doubt. He will establish that which is already true concerning him. But he waits and he tarries And the Bible tells us why He waits. Remember? Why does He wait? I mean, He really is the King of kings and Lord of lords. It's not like He's going to become that when He comes. He already is. People just don't give Him that place. But as soon as He decides to take it, it will be His. Why does He wait? For what purpose does He tarry or delay? Because He desires men to be saved. Because when He comes, the opportunity for salvation will be passed. The opportunity to come to faith in Christ will have been missed. And so He delays that coming so to give opportunity to men to hear the gospel and to come to faith. So that when He comes, you'll be with Him and you'll be you'll be riding behind him not looking up at his coming he delays because of his love for mankind he delays and tolerates the rebellion and the taking of his name in vain he delays the place of what is rightfully his as king of kings and lord of lords and he waits for men's heart to turn in faith that he might show mercy and he invites and he knocks and He draws. And He works all circumstance in your life to bring you to that knowledge. You may be here tonight and, and, and you don't know Him yet as Savior. You don't know Him yet as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He, there's coming a day when every knee will bow. Better to acknowledge that today than to wait until the time is gone and the opportunity has passed. When he comes again, he will come with a very different attitude than, than than the way he even intercedes today. Second half here, and we'll look and close in these last verses tonight. The second thing that we I want you to consider there, you've seen his coming, let's look at his conquest. We'll see that in verses 17 through 21. And three thoughts that stand out to me there. First, Notice with me in verses 17 and 19, the gathering, the gathering. Then I saw, verse 17, then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, The flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all people free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. There is going to be a gathering. This angel is is calling to the birds of the air, come and gather, there is getting ready to be a great slaughter. And he calls the birds of the air to come and feast on the flesh of those he is getting ready to destroy. There's a passage you don't need to turn, but in Matthew 24, Jesus said this concerning his second coming, for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the son of Son of man, be very sudden for wherever the carcass is there. The eagles will be gathered together. You know, I always always wondered about that verse. He's talking about his coming back. And then all of a sudden he throws in this this line about carcasses and eagles. What's he talking about? Well, I think he's talking about this very reference here in Revelation 19 when he calls the birds of the air. The angel calls together in you know, getting ready to proclaim the slaughter that's getting, you know, that's just about to happen on the earth. And he's gathering the birds of the air and where the carcasses are gathered, there the vultures will, the eagles will come to feast on what is his victory. They're gathering the the birds of the air, but you notice also there's a gathering of the armies of the earth. You see that in verse 19. The beast, that's the Antichrist. The kings of the earth that are under his authority and under his deception and their armies. They gather together to make war against him. This is is what we refer to as the, the battle of Armageddon. There's a reference for it actually back in Revelation 16, we saw kind of a a preview of this battle where the beast and the false prophet through demonic signs and 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 deception goes out and gathers the armies of the world together in that place called Armageddon Harma meaning mount Megiddo the, the mount and, and there's an area there in Israel there is a, a mount of Megiddo there and Exactly where this Armageddon battle will take place, it's, you know, we can't be sure, but we know that there is this place in Israel that these armies will be gathered, the beast and the false prophet and all the armies, they will be there, and there will be this great gathering for Christ's conquest. Notice there's, it's all kings, captains, mighty men, all people, free and slaves, small and great. There will be no exception. They will be deceived by the Antichrist. They will have taken his mark. They will have followed him to battle and Christ will come in his conquest. There is the gathering. There is also verse 20, the capturing verse 20 says, then the beast was captured and with him, the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. When Christ comes, he will immediately capture the beast, the Antichrist, the false prophet. We've seen and studied them in prior chapters. He will immediately capture them and throw them alive into the lake of fire. This lake of fire burning with brimstone. It's what we would reference as hell, hellfire. Hellfire. You can't get away from this in Scripture. We know of Jesus and His salvation and His mercy and His grace, but there is also a judgment. There is also a consequence of rejecting His salvation. Jesus would speak of this often, even while He was on the earth. He spoke of this hellfire. In Matthew 25, He referenced it as a place prepared for Satan and his angels. But it will not be just Satan and his angels as we see here. The Antichrist and the false prophet They're the first to go in. Isaiah says of this place, it's a place where their worm shall not die and their fire shall not be quenched. It is a perpetual place of torture. Matthew 13, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This lake of fire is a real place where people will go that reject Christ. Now, today... Those that die, that are saved and know Jesus Christ, immediately go to be with the Lord. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we have a confidence that those who die in faith immediately go to be with Christ. But those who die in an unsaved condition, those who do not know Jesus as Savior, when they die, the Bible reveals that they go to a place called Hades. And best we can tell through the scriptures, it seems to be a holding place, awaiting the final judgment. It's not the lake of fire. It's not hell. And we'll see in our future studies together that there's a day coming when death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire. But a place called Hades, a place where where they wait the judgment and the judgment when it comes Those that know, these are those that don't know Christ. They will ultimately be cast into this lake of fire, what we reference as hell. So, just a little clarification there. Sometimes we think, oh, if somebody doesn't know the Lord, they die. They went straight to hell. No, they went to Hades. They will get to hell, but they're not there yet. They're in a holding pattern. There's several passages of Scripture that reveal that. The capturing. Of the Antichrist and his prophet and the casting them into the lake of fire. And finally, verse 21, we see the consuming. This consuming conquest. And the rest, that is all the other armies and men and those that were gathered for battle. The rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh killed with the sword of His Word. And you notice at just one verse, it is, it is no contest. It is, it's, it's no match. It's not like a long, drawn-out battle. Jesus comes, He immediately dethrones the Antichrist and deals with Him, and He immediately destroys all the armies that are gathered against Him. And this is the beginning of Him establishing His rule and reign. I want to close tonight if you'll turn with me to Second Timothy, Chapter Two. Second Timothy, chapter Two. Oops. The Apostle Paul speaking of and encouraging Timothy concerning faith in Christ, talking about his ministry. And, you know, the Apostle Paul had a difficult time in ministry. Ministry was not easy. It was not easy spreading the gospel during the time of the Roman Empire that Paul lived, during the time of the persecution that he received from Jews and Gentiles alike. But he endured it. And he says in verse 10, 2 Timothy 2.10, encouraging his, his young apprentice Timothy. He says, therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. The apostle Paul talking about really the purpose of his ministry is it was to see men come to faith in Christ. And he says this is a faithful saying, Timothy. You see Paul understood this judgment that we've looked, this 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 ultimate judgment that we looked at tonight. When you you know we don't like to think about hell and we don't like to think about judgment. I, I mean it's not a pleasant topic. But if we don't, if we're not honest about it, if we don't consider the reality of these things, then it, it kind of we kind of lose our sense of urgency concerning the gospel. It could happen. We lose our own appreciation for salvation. I don't know about you. I read these passages and I think, oh man, I am, I am glad I'm not on the receiving end of that, being pressed down like a wine press. No thank you. So there's an appreciation and a value for what Christ has saved me from, but there's also an urgency that comes into my heart recognizing that you know He tarries so that men can be saved. And Paul understood that and he said, I endure whatever I have to endure because, listen, those that come to faith in Christ are going to rule and reign with Him. There's great there's great, you know, promise for those that come to Christ, but those that deny Him, He's going to deny them. There's great consequence for those that don't hear the Gospel and don't receive the Gospel. I'd like to leave that in your heart tonight as we close and consider this, this second coming of Christ. Be encouraged. If you know Jesus and you have faith in Christ, you're gonna be on his you're gonna be on a white horse. Mine will be faster and prettier than yours. <laughs> <laughs> and you're gonna come as one of his armies to return and rule and reign with him. He's gonna establish his kingdom and we're going to be there with him. But if you don't know Christ, oh, my heart says to you, get right with God. Be reconciled tonight. Get your heart right with the Lord. And for those of us that, that know Him, guys, share the Gospel. <laughs> Snatch Him from the fire because it's coming. That lake of fire is real. And I don't want to see any go to it. The Lord desires that none would perish but that all would come to salvation. And He's calling us to be His ambassadors. Let's pray tonight. Father, we thank You for the promise of Christ's return. Lord, when I look at the world and what's going on and where it's headed, I can just say, thank You, Jesus, that You are coming back. Because what would become of men left to themselves? What will become of future generations without Jesus coming and bringing justice and peace? Lord, we, our hearts are encouraged in this, that we serve a Savior who is faithful and true. Even His name is faithful and true. And we know that Your promises are sure and that Your Word is like a, an anchor, a foundation upon which we can build our lives. Lord, we can live as though these things are true. We can actually begin to live our lives with a view to eternity. And I pray that we would. I pray that it would impact our hearts. I pray that it would stir our hearts. And Lord, as we are gathered here tonight, my heart is concerned for those who may be here tonight that are simply not ready to meet You. And that if that night were to come tonight, Lord, they would not be prepared. Because they've never allowed you to forgive them of all their sins. Lord, coming to you, coming to faith in Christ is not some, some bad thing. It's not like, hey, you've got to come and, and suffer No, you have to just come and let me cleanse you and forgive you and love you and bless you and adopt you into my family and put my spirit in your heart and life and give you promise. Lord, if there are any here tonight, I pray that your spirit would draw them, that they would hear this gospel, this good news that Jesus Christ loves them, that he does not want them to perish in judgment, and so he delays his coming. And it may be that you've delayed for a few that are here still tonight. Lord, I'm glad you waited for me to come. And there may be those that need to come tonight. And as our heads are bowed tonight, I'm going to give you an invitation to respond. If you're here tonight and you don't know the Lord and you're not ready to meet him, you've never really come into relationship with him. I want to pray for you. And that's all it is, is a prayer of invitation, a receiving of the gift that he has provided for you. Or maybe you're here tonight and all well, at one time you, you, you did accept and embrace Christ, but in your heart tonight you, you've, you know that you've drifted so far away that you have that sense that you're, you're not ready either. And you just want to come and rededicate yourself to Him and get your life right with Him again, afresh. I want to pray for you as well. So heads are bowed and we're still in a spirit of prayer. But I'm going to invite you, if you're here tonight and you need to come to the Lord for the very first time or you need to rededicate your life to the Lord, would you raise your hand where you're seated so that I can see you and we, can, we will pray for you. Anybody here tonight? God bless you there in the center. I see that hand. Anyone else here tonight? I'm so thankful that the Lord waited for this one heart to come to Christ. Anyone else? Well, the Bible says that when even one sinner comes to repentance, that all of heaven rejoices. You know, I have a sense tonight that there are some others that the Lord is drawing. And I want to pray for this one heart that's responded, but I, I want to wait, make one, one last opportunity. I, I read that passage out of Timothy. If we deny Him, He will deny us. Or is there anyone here tonight, anyone else, that needs to come and get their life right with the Lord? So, Lord, I thank You for this one heart that has responded. And as You rejoice, Lord, we rejoice. And I pray that You would wrap Your arms around this one heart, Lord, and welcome them into relationship with You. That You would assure them tonight that they are forgiven and cleansed. That You love them and that Jesus came to die on a cross for them. Yes, He will return to judge the earth. But He has not destined those of His children to wrath. And so, Lord, for this one heart, may they receive promise and hope that they are no longer under wrath, but they are under mercy and love. Fill them with Your righteousness. Cleanse them of their sins. Fill them with Your Spirit and transform their heart. Old things pass away. All things are made new. And may this be the beginning, Lord, of a fresh and new walk in relationship with you that will end in glory, reigning with you when you return to rule and reign the earth. We thank you, Lord, for these promises. We thank you, God, for your spirit's ministry in our hearts tonight. Be with us and strengthen us as we go, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless.